there was something about that terrible tragedy, just like you, where it took and it like highly focused the lenses of my heart and my life and said, here's what matters. Everything else can go to shit. Here's what matters. been good we got uh my husband and i went and did a kind of an anniversary trip down to mexico and we're back now so we're we're trying to get back to our work schedules which is like uh, yeah wow what part of mexico uh just south of cancun it's near the tulum area playa del carmen no way i grew up in cancun way you did (laughs) wow it's beautiful down there yeah was this your first time in that area um it was our second time actually and we really loved it okay we loved it so how long have you been up here in the u.s i have been here in austin six years and in the u.s seven years i was in california before here doing university uh that's really cool that you were just down there i was down there like a month and a half ago as well well you were yeah I, i love it down there i i everybody was friendly and hospitable and easy to work with it was it was nice we really had a good time yeah i love yeah. hearing that um, yeah you're a cancun native what what are the locals called in cancun are you cancuni cancunenses cancunenses Ooh, <laughs> that's awesome yeah, we yeah. Had fun. i'm really glad to hear that especially uh like it's a nice little update for people who have read the book just considering all the stuff that y'all have been through and I'm sure we'll get yeah. into it um the I guess where I wanted to start was just for people who have no idea who you are obviously I'll put all of this in the show notes and all that but how did you end up writing a book and <laughs> more specifically why why a book on grief um, and for those who don't know the book is called when grief is good turning your greatest lesson loss into your biggest lesson yeah thanks for asking so it's it's really interesting i did not want to write this book at all um, i wanted to write a book on bravery i wanted to write a book on courage um, overcoming difficulties being a hero like that was all my more just felt juicier and sexier to talk about because it just feels better. And my mentor was like, yeah, but that's not how it went down for you. Like literally your story is, has so much dark energy around it. And if you go in and try to tell this story of heroics and bravery, you're going to do your readers a disservice. And you have to be honest about the grief and the loss that, um, was the truth in your life. And I was like, oh, fine. I even had a writing coach that said, mm, okay, so yeah, you have a lot to say about loss, but maybe that shouldn't be your first book because, you know, writers kind of get pigeonholed then like what they write about becomes what they're known for. And do you really want that to be what you're known for? And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, no. And then a year went by. And then it kept, it kept coming back mostly. And I don't know how morbid this will sound, Nick, but I kept having losses. People kept dying. And I went, man, there's just a lot. There's a lot. Oh, and a pandemic, Mm -hmm. a pandemic. So honestly, the topic itself kind of backed me into a corner and I, it was overflowing. So I'm like, all right, let's write it. Let's do it. We're going in. Was this your, well, obviously it wasn't your first time kind of writing about these things or what was that 
like had you already done the work of accepting it and it was just about I'm not sure if I want to put this out there yeah I had written a lot about different topics I've written in the LA Times and Huffington Post about struggling with hard things in life but really calling it grief it, it and especially after I started talking to publishers here was their general feeling about writing a book about grief Wah, wah. <laughs> that was kind of like, you know, it's just such a dark topic. And, and I, when you read the book, you'll see that it's really about a hero's journey and not my own, but about everybody who goes on the difficult path of loss and how it transforms people and an invitation to step into that transformation process. But grief is the leader there's no growth without grief and there's just not. And, and so that is what the book's about. And I, I, uh, I wrote it for a year during the pandemic. And I remember telling my husband, my gosh, I, I, I don't think I can write a book again during a pandemic about grief and loss. It's super depressing. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I was actually, it's not released or anything yet, but I was working on a memoir during the pandemic too. And it's, I think for me, I've, I've found comfort in, in writing. And so even during the pandemic, there was like, all right, things don't seem to be making sense, but at least I've got this thing that, you know, even though I was crying during the writing and just not wanting, like resisting a lot of the hard truths, it still was sort of gave me that like a uh, silver lining, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things, I mean, you say like publishers were like not so into the idea of a book on grief, but I think it's super important that there is stuff like this out there because I came across this book almost like the the universe was providing it for me at the mm. perfect time. And I briefly mentioned to you in the introduction email that I, I guess it started with my like a uh, recent relationship ending. Mm. And there's, there's even a part in the book that's like grief is seemed uh, often referred to as like losing a loved one or these extreme cases of grief mm-hmm. but breakups or even like moving from one apartment to another like there's yes. so many different forms of grief and this not only provided me with the tools but it also in and of itself was a tool it was like a companion for me of just mm all right, I'm not alone. And, Mm. and I feel like there's so many people in situations like those all the time. Mm -hmm. And, and so I really appreciate just you adding to sort of normalizing grief and, and the process of grief. I'm really glad you're exactly right because people don't actually understand some of the physical reactions that they're having. I just had a client tell me, He's a, a contemplating a divorce, kind of starting to get into that process. And he's like, Cindy, I just feel so rudderless, mm. rudderless. And I said, that's grief. That's grief. Another client who's just having marriage difficulties said, I just have this big like hole in my stomach and in my chest. And I go, oh, that's grief. Right. When I'm losing my comfort, my peace of mind, my known life, my way of thinking, or like you, and I'm losing the connection that I used to have. Um, and, and in your story, I'm surprised you didn't write this book before me. You've gone through a lot. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't think I've gotten to the point where I can sort of like in in your book it's there's there's a lot in there but reading it I didn't get the the dark vibe Uh, to me me it was very much like she's overcome all of this stuff and Mm -hmm. she's just laying it out for us whereas Mm -hmm. a lot of times the stuff I'm writing is like it's just happened a year ago or two or three years ago so it's got a very different kind of 
um, energy, but, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I guess I've been trying to identify the good and bad grief and seeing how much of, of what I've been experiencing in the last month or month and a half has been good grief and how much has been bad grief. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two? Yeah, happy to do it. And, you know, grief doesn't really show up and be like, hey, so I'm bad grief, you know, let's hang out or I'm good grief. It doesn't it doesn't do that. It's just kind of where we find ourselves. You know, I have a I have a kind of funny story. I did this book launch a couple of weeks ago and the event planner called me and she's like, hey, you know, she's just an event planner doing her thing. And she's like, do you want to have a signature cocktail um, that really goes with your event. And, and I said, mm, like, what is the signature cocktail of grief? Like, I don't know. Like, what would you call that? Isn't that just like a tequila shot or like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so I got such a giggle out of that because the big problem with grief is most of us just want to numb it. We just want to numb it. My husband works for uh, the sheriff's department search and rescue. And they went, on a search that ended up being a retrieval of somebody who had passed away out in the desert in a, at the end of a bender, um, actually a young gal who was 30 and they retrieved her body parts and it was super jolting for everybody that was there. And he called me from the bar. He's like, okay, we came back. Here's a story found these articles of hers, actual body parts, clothing, and, and a bottle of booze. And where was he? He's at the bar. He's like, I just need to go have a drink real quick. Like that was literally because it was such a actually traumatic experience, even though this is the work they do. And so grief can get bad when I can't function without bringing in some other substance, or I routinely want to push it away. So like bad grief is debilitating. Like I'm going to be debilitated sometimes, but bad grief is like the, all the feels that come with it, which are heavy, heavy, heavy. But now I can't function without my substance or without my avoidance. Or if my loss is making me want to not live anymore, or I become really difficult to live with. That's when my grief can turn. And let's be honest, I'm going to probably want to numb my losses and be difficult to live with and think about why am I on this earth? Like those are normal, but grief is not good when it becomes the way of life. When the dark sides of it become my way of life. So it's almost like, like, uh, the, the amount of time that you spend in that more so than just having that come up. Cause that was, you know, Right now, I feel almost like I'm not completely done grieving the relationship, but the the very intense and debilitating part lasted like a couple of weeks. Yeah. And, you know, thankfully, I didn't go back to any of my bad habits, but I definitely had those urges. Mm-hmm. And even without falling into them, I still felt like not I can't function without them, but like, I can't, I just can't function. And sort of, I guess, allowing myself to exist in that space for a little bit of time, Mm -hmm. and then slowly start to pull myself out of it. Is it is it bad grief when you just don't really ever pull yourself out? And you're just like, this is just it or yeah I mean I I, when I worked in a psychiatric hospital there were times when the admission reason or the prompting event for what brought somebody into a mental health emergency into the hospital was a a significant loss so it's not a bad grief at their if they're at the hospital Um, what it is is that grief is really sneaky and sometimes we don't understand how the grief we're experiencing is actually fueling other things in our lives. And so that's why taking the off-ramp like you did, where you were like, okay, I'm going to be in this dark space for a while. And even feeling like you can't function for a period of time is really normal. 
But if I get into that place where I'm very isolated, my thoughts are extremely dark or dangerous. Um, I knew a family who lost their only son. It was, he was young. He died of childhood cancer. He was like six years old. It was just, yeah, it just shouldn't be that way. And they were both contemplating ending their lives so they could go be with him. And to me, I get it. And that might be dark grief, you know, where it's just not, is that really how you're going to honor his life? Is that going to be the end of the story? I'll tell you another story. There's a, you know, given that I live here in Southern California, a friend of mine just messaged me um, the story of Vanessa Bryant, Kobe Bryant's widow, who was up in court because she went to court. She was suing the LA County Sheriff's Department because, as you know, the terrible event happened where there was one of their deputies that was taking pictures at the scene of the accident. This is so bad for a family to know that their loved ones in their most vulnerable, most tragic moments are being exploited, right, by a camera. And some of what the article said, now I can't quote Vanessa, but some of what the article said was that she was suing for damages based on those photos and some of the feedback the judge gave her or one of the attorneys said, how can you be damaged by photos you've never seen? I want to recommend, here's what the attorney said, that you be checked by a psychologist for um, a grief response because she was so adamant that she was going to shut down the sheriff's department through this. And, you know, that is a grief response. When I want revenge, when I want to make things right for my loved ones, when I'm in a leverage my entire life to go and bring justice to a situation that might be a grief response that could go either way into good or bad do you do you follow me when I say that yeah yeah Yeah. and I yeah that that clicks for me because I definitely had way way smaller compared to that but just moments where I would be lying in bed at night and having a hard time going to sleep. And I would start to think about my ex-girlfriend and there, sometimes there would be, you know, some anger would come up or something. Uh. And I, it would, this is the first time after a relationship ending that I have been able to, when those thoughts come up to like hear them, but then replace them with like, no, actually I wish her the best. And I'm grateful that I got to have her in my life for the time that I did. Oh, it, it just big. felt it felt better to even though I was still sad and and yeah. like worried about is she seeing someone else now whatever the the thoughts can be it just felt better to hold positive energy mm. f- for her for me for the relationship. So, so you weren't hopping on crazy train. That's what my friend calls it. Who's written a book about relational withdrawal. You hop on crazy train and you're scrolling through their social media and you're stalking around their house and you're showing up. You didn't do that. with it. I mean, I was fortunate that she doesn't really have very much of a social media presence. Okay. Um, the one thing that I, the one crazy train I did hop on was uh, on WhatsApp uh, you can see like the online status or whatever. Yeah. And every now and then I would hop on there and just click her chat and see if she was online just so I could get that, that moment of like, mm-hmm. Ooh, we're both connected to our phones right now. So yeah, there's something there. There's yeah. some kind of connection. Um, but yeah. And then like kind of how you started talking about like the, that there was just so much grief for you is that the breakup happened and then it was, all right, if I can just grieve this, then I'll be good. And then uh, the very next day after the breakup, I hung out with one of my best friends and he told me that day, Hey, I'm moving away from town. Like I'm moving to Dallas. And I was like, fuck, now I've got another thing. And then couple weeks later this was maybe last week my dad calls and tells us he has a brain tumor oh and it's just like the 
do you feel like there ever is a time where there isn't grief? Because I know that you mm-hmm. talk about like micro grieving and mm-hmm. it's like it, it, it definitely feels like there have been times in my life where I'm feeling more joy and feeling more of the positive emotions, but it, there's not really ever like a finish line, you know? Right. Can't there be a done? I remember my my husband asking once, he's like, when are we there? Like, when do we know we're done, that we did a good job? Is there a cold star? And it was like, the answer was no. There is no there with this type of stuff. There's a quote I really like by a pastor out here named Rick Warren. And it says, you know, he used to think of life as hills and valleys. Okay, so highs and lows. And before I tell you the rest of his quote, I'll tell you why his quote is important to me, because Rick Warren has done more for the evangelical church to open up the church to mental health um, awareness and education and support rather than how it used to be, where they used to marginalize, in my opinion, people that had mental health struggles and like, you don't have enough faith and just trust God. Yeah, I'm literally having a psychotic break. How am I supposed to trust God when the brain that's inside of me isn't even working? Like, okay, like if I have a broken leg, do I want me to just trust God or do I need to go get an x-ray and get it set? But anyway, that's an aside. So Rick and Kay Warren um, have a son, had a son because he ended up passing away. You may know his story. The deal was he was born and they said from the moment he was born, he was very, very different. He's highly sensitive. And when he was 18, he had dozens of therapists and um, like many multiple diagnoses of mental illness. And when he was 18, he said, I'd I'd like to die. It's so hard to be me. It's so miserable. And he didn't, he stayed with them. And then when he was 28, he ended up taking his life and kind of like you, that perspective that they held was we got him for 10 years longer than what we thought originally Mm. we were going to have. And so when people who have been through such a dark night of the soul, like Rick and Kay, who brought every medication, every support, every prayer, every book to bear. And that still wasn't enough to, you know, make a good outcome. If you want to say, um, when they talk, I listen, I listen because they're leaders and they're experts and they're family members with a lived experience. And while that was all happening, um, him, Kay went through breast cancer and many other things, but here's his quote. I used to think of life as hills and valleys, ups and downs. And now I see it more as two railroad tracks side by side. And life is always either taking you into, through, or out of a difficulty. So if you feel like you're in one right now, you're going to be heading out soon. But then the next is you're heading in. He said, Mm. that's more what life is like, that you're either headed into one in the middle of one or heading out of one. And I appreciate him flipping the script on how we think about struggles because like my husband said, is there a there? When do we get done? I mean, we, there's that famous, it's a maybe infamous thing that we all feel when we're struggling and when things are piling up like you, you know, having the best friend leaving, going through the loss of a significant relationship having your dad call with that devastating news, it's like, haven't I gone through enough? Like that's the question that's inevitably thrown out to life, to God, to the universe. Haven't I gone through enough? Like is how much more can one person take? And the answer is, I don't know. I, I, I don't know because when I thought I had hit all I could handle, it then got worse Mm -hmm. from there. Like I continue to have far worse challenges that in myself as like, Oh, like I, this is absolutely the worst thing I've ever gone through, but guess what? A month later, the next thing was then far worse. And then that was the worst thing I had gone through. And I realized that with these challenges, this thing of grief and loss and this darkness was actually stretching me and reshaping me and growing me. And I hated every minute of it. 
I was furious. I was like, what the, Ugh. <laughs> can we swear on this podcast? I was like, yeah. what the yeah. F? Swear as much as you want. What kind of shit, <laughs> shit is this? Like it totally blew my schema or my paradigm of, gosh, if I do good things, like I'm going to get good in return. Like I'm a good person. <laughs> Right, man, doing all this good, like you, I'm doing all this good. Why does my dad have brain cancer? Why am this relationship breaking up? Why is my best friend leaving? Well, I'd probably say, because you're in the gym burning your muscles and making something like life's growing you. But one of my questions is like, why does grief have to be good for us? Why can't good things be good for us? You know, like ice cream or new shoes. Like why? (laughs) That's one of the big, like, things I had with the title of the book I'm like oh I don't want to write a title of a book grief is good because nobody wants grief to be good right chocolate chip cookies are good what does it have to be grief yeah and I think at least one of the the things I've learned this time around is the one of the reasons grief has been good for me this time is that and I was telling my brother this like if this relationship hadn't have ended, I may not have gotten the chance to see my best friend and have mm-hmm. a full day where we went kayaking and then we ate barbecue and we talked about, mm-hmm. you know, what his plans are. And we just had like a beautiful time together, even dis- like despite the grief. And, mm-hmm. and when I had that experience, I thought, well, hey, I've got a bunch of other people in my life that I see, but maybe not as much as I would like to. Maybe this is a good time to like dedicate myself to those relationships. And it like, I would be lying if I said that I overcame my grief for any other reason than Mm -hmm. the support that I had. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's like, maybe it's easy for me to say it right now because those super intense mm-hmm. negative emotions are mostly gone. Mm-hmm. But there is a part of me that feels like even in that moment, I felt like, Oh, this is good. This is the, I feel love and I feel something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's sort of forcing me to accept things that I've been keeping at a distance and, Mm. rejecting um mm-hmm. oh like an invitation of like let's go all the way like you need to look at this stuff to me when i hear you say that like you you were able to really savor and value your friend and really soak in your time together and say sorry podcast weird hair moment there <laughs> Can we go ahead and edit that? <laughs> Wait, it's got, you know, how everything's backwards on the screen. Like, yeah. oh my God. I, I had a, a woman. I had a moment yesterday on a call where I had like this part of my hair popping out and it was no, just all like, I could think about for the two hours. Right. Where you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> when, when I think about like what you're, what you're talking about, when life comes in and pushes me around and bullies me and torments me for lack of a better word. Anytime then that I'm not being tormented or bullied or suffering or struggling is such a gift. Mm. I'm like, Oh, look, there's peace in my day to day. I mean, you know, if you've read the, the, the book that we lost my son's best friend, Colin, he was 18 and I saw him say, bye, honey, have a good night at work. He was living with us. And five minutes later, he was hit and killed by a car. And I remember just being like, like, like this for days and in between sobbing and crying. And then there was this moment when I realized, you know, one of my sons was sitting next to me and I was like, my son is sitting next to me. It was just such a holy reverent oh my god moment because my son was sitting next to me and he was alive and breathing and you know two days before that I was like oh hey to my son I wasn't like my son is sitting next to me there was something about that terrible tragedy just like you where it took and it like highly focused the lenses of my heart and my life and said 
here's what matters. Mm. Everything else can go to shit. Here's what matters. And that's why I say like grief is the best guru ever. You know, people go like, I love yoga. You know, I'm in California. So I go to yoga and acupuncture and eat avocado toast and all that. (laughs) But people are always looking for enlightenment or inner peace. And I'm like, go through severe loss because that'll focus you. And you'll be able to really feel what matters the most and the sacredness of what's right in front of you, the most common, ordinary thing that you would breeze past in other days will just be like, well, Philly, you don't have to go sit in a yoga studio or, you know, try to get happy. It'll just make it that way for you. My son was sitting right next to me, Nick. I was like, he's right there. I'm so lucky. I got chills hearing that. So yeah and it's a it's that's that's what you're saying yeah and there's there is the just like how you how you phrased it of like it shows you what matters yeah and kind of gives you an opportunity then to like you're on the railroad and there's two different tracks that you can go Mm -hmm. down it's like here's the one where you integrate all the stuff that you've learned from this grief experience Mm -hmm. or here's the one where you go around in a circle and come back to the same (laughs) right oh life's gonna life or god are gonna be like okay you need that lesson again let's go yeah (laughs) i I know i'm like wait i swear i went through i've been married twice and there's a story do you mind if i tell a little story absolutely not okay so just tell me if it goes too long but Okay, so I'm a girl who prays. So I was I was married the second time and you know I'm in my 30s and I was just so mad about my husband he had done something and I was like thinking. So I was sitting there I was like in the bathtub and I'm like going to tell God all my complaints about my new husband and I swear to you I heard this like internal response and I'm not saying God talked to me. I don't know what it was, but it was like that's so funny, Cindy, because that's exactly what you complained about in your first marriage. <laughs> You're like the common denominator in that. <laughs> go, oh my gosh, like, oh, like those lessons, right? And so when these clarifying, important lessons are brought to us, even in the darkest paper, the darkest energy, it's like, give me that freaking lesson. I want to learn it, whatever it is, because I've just now had too many of them where grief and loss, they're coming and they're teaching you and they're leading you and they're taking you on some journey. There's no growth without grief. It just, it just is. And it sucks. (laughs) It does. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this because so another thing that I've taken from the last month or two is empathy for people who Mm. choose no grief or choose avoidance um, or like choose not to do such intense emotional work or whatever Mm because the week before the breakup I spent every single day at odds with myself where it was like if I want to continue this trajectory of growth, I know that this relationship is going to make that nearly impossible staying in it. Mm. But the thought of not being in it is Mm. feels like death. Mm. And, and even in my situation where I feel like I have done, you know, at least a few years of, of work on myself, it was like, just give me the easy way out. Like it took so much Please. effort to, to choose the grief. Mm. So what's, what, what are your thoughts on, I guess, like, I don't want to just say like, Oh, well, yeah, it's hard to do it. So I give everybody an excuse and nobody has got to do it and they can just all take the easy way out. But mm-hmm. um Well, you know, as a therapist, what I'm going to say and a recovering codependent myself, like you and I are both that, um, first of all, you can only change yourself. You know that. And I know that. And I hate that shit. (laughs) I want to tell, like, let me, I mean, my whole book is like, here, here's how to make grief good. 
And if you're not going to do that, like you're going to get that back. And that, that lesson is going to slap you over the head a jillion times, but okay. Because look at failure speeds learning, Mm. failure speeds learning. So there's sometimes, I mean, I've, I've had couples and I've worked with people and one of them just cannot get into the place of self-awareness, like good emotional intelligence. A big part of EQ is self-awareness and empathy. So you've actually opened up this big can of topics. First of all, grief is the birthplace of empathy. Hear that with me. Grief is actually the birthplace of empathy for others. When I go through something, oh my God, it, my soul is exploded with an understanding for what other people go through. That's another topic. We'll do it another day. But this thing of people who want to avoid it. So sometimes I work with couples who one person just, they're like, nope, it's them. It's the other person. They just want to stay in blame and shame. They're not willing to do, you know, the fearless inventory, look at themselves, take personal stock, make needed changes. And so in my mind, now we all know this about me, in my mind, I say they need more pain, Mm. they need more suffering because suffering is um, one of the best teachers ever. So for people who aren't going to do the grief work. It's really interesting. I have a client and uh, she went through a divorce and she may be going through another one. And she said something interesting to me with with a, a subsequent second marriage. And she said to me, you know, the first time I went through this, I was using all my, um, survival patterns, drinking hookups, overeating, undereating, shopping, controlling others, um, drugs and alcohol. So I didn't feel anything. And now this time I've developed myself and my personal growth work to the point where I've understood those are all survival patterns only. They're not like healthy adult Mm. ways of doing life to cope and manage and tolerate negative feelings. So now I'm sitting in it, Cindy, and I can tell you, it feels like I'm on fire. Wow. So when people are sitting and actually going through like what you decided to do, Nick, you said, I'm going to face into it. I'm going to go, I'm going to like tangle with this thing and try to get all the lessons. That's a hot minute before you get through that stuff. So for my clients, this is a big deal for her. She said, last time I didn't really feel, and this time I'm choosing to show up for all the feels. Well, guess what? She's in a tough place because the pain of that who wants to show up for that. So when I see people go off into coping or survival patterns, I mean, it makes sense on some level, right? I don't naturally go toward a hot stove. I don't naturally want to go walk across hot coals. So your podcast and things like post-traumatic growth, where I work, actually inviting people into the process and saying, look at, like, there's a huge learning that can happen here for you. And if we're to look at life like a game, it's going to level you up. Hmm. You're going to kick up to another uh, extra levels. If you do this, these are like the Easter eggs and the coins and all that boom, 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 new weapons. That's what this, and I have a couple of gamers in my family, right? I know. So that's what this kind of work does in people's lives. But who wants to feel that? It's so much easier not to. And we live in a culture that says it's not real. Don't feel, just work harder, drink more. Um, get really, really busy, check out, um, distract, just do the next 27 things. Like we don't live in a culture that says, well, hey, so let's slow down and feel all your feelings. Like we'd rather medicate it in some way. So I get both. I get both sides of it. Yeah. No, I've definitely gained like a new sense of empathy i used to be way more on my high horse of like people need to do the work and this is going to change your life um Mm -hmm. but i I like what you ended it with because that's a topic i wanted to get into the this idea that at least in western society like your relationship ends 
and maybe they just left your apartment or you left theirs or however it ended and you're sitting there and nobody's taught you what comes next Um, and if you don't have that many friends or you're not that close with your family what the hell do you do like (laughs) and I've even I've even joked around with myself of like there's there's a leave for pregnancy and there's like bereavement and it's like there should be like a a leave for breakups or you know some grief leave um it's true how what's what's your take on like how we got here and how we can move forward and what we can do while we're still in it well i feel like we're you know death and grief avoidant because it's it's sort of like losing if you die or you grieve like people don't like the word losing (laughs) like it's a law you know you've lost Mm. and i so the quick answer because i know this is a podcast because i can get like really chatty on these topics no i'm enjoying it (laughs) you could come to my hope and healing retreat so if you're just sitting alone in your apartment watching this podcast I'm having a five-day grief intensive in a couple of weeks. So you can come wow. out here and do that with me in California. But for everybody else, I've learned some ways of looking at people. Um, and I really like it. It's the work of Lori Jean Glass and the healthy adult. And she says that we are humans along five domains. So physical, spiritual, financial, educational, and uh, not educational, um, intellectual, and I'm sure there's one more that I'll have to look up because I can't remember it right now. So wait, hold on. You've got to edit this out, Nick. (laughs) We're physical, financial, spiritual, emotional, and there's, well, I can't, why can't, why can't I remember it? Okay. So here's an answer. When I go through significant loss and I don't have a lot of learning or education around it, There's something that happens in us that when I go through loss, it's as if I go through a doorway of disbelief and I can't believe these things have happened to me. And there's a natural questioning and curiosity that arises in people. Why me? Mm. Why this? Why would they do that? So because the human spirit and the human soul sort of has a quest to stay alive and survive, right? We have a survival push inside of us. Like I've worked with people who are very suicidal and, and, you know, but they, this is such an aside, but, you know, if you were to actually ask them, do you really want to take your life? Do you want to end your life? No, I just don't want to live. So it's a very different kind of thing. Like they're actually scared of the actual death part, but just the not knowing how to live. So we actually have a a push to survive inside of us. And to me, I believe that push to survive and understand and overcome actually rises up within people. So my answer, if you don't have a lot of resources, support, connection, is lean into that. What are the bigger questions that you're asking on the inside? For instance, I've seen people break into a spiritual life like they've never had before because of loss, Um, that they start asking the questions that you just don't have time to ask. Like, why me? Why am I here? What about God? What about uh, my spirit? What about purpose? What about meaning? Mm -hmm. So actually showing up for the questions that are happening on the inside. What is my life about? If I thought my life was about this thing, this family, this person, these children, this job that I just lost, this person I just lost, but I've lost them now. So now what am I about? Like, lean into those questions Hmm. and actually go on the hero's journey because there is a hero's journey with grief and loss in your own story. This, I I don't know if you would have read my book or called me for this podcast or be doing this um, research and this promotion of post-traumatic growth, which is what we're talking about here. Had you not gone through that loss you, you wouldn't have savored your friend the way you did and really soak them in had you not gone through that loss. And your dad's diagnosis may not impact you the way that it's going to now. And you, 
Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. And, and the difference is you're, you leaned in and, and maybe that's the big bottom line takeaway. What, what if we just leaned into it? Yeah. And, and it's, it's hard for me to, to accept that I leaned in. There's a part of me that wants to say, like, I was kind of just. Oh yeah. You didn't, you didn't lean in. You were forced in, you were backed into a corner. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I'm going to, yeah. We can't give you that credit. (laughs) (laughs) But on the, on the topic of like a actual death or potential death, like with the, my, my situation with my dad, uh, I guess a year ago, I would have felt like I've got a lot of stuff that I'm going to regret if he passes away. Mm-hmm. And a year ago, I went and I did those things. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily feel like there is any regret, but there is there, there are things popping up for me where, where like he says the doctors are optimistic and they're going to it's a minor surgery or whatever. And, and in my brain, I'm like, well, yeah, but whatever created the tumor isn't going to go away mm-hmm. like it, that's from my understanding that's all uh, stuck grief and trauma that's trying to give you mm-hmm. a sign mm-hmm. and and it feels like the work for me now is to just accept he's either going to come to that on his own or not come to that at mm-hmm. all so does it does that feel like that's does that align with i guess your vision for grief is like instead of like the the Vanessa Bryant thing like instead of obsessing over he's got to do this the way I would do it and blah blah Mm -hmm. it's like how about instead I just try to take in as much time as I have left with him that's right that's right I've seen people when I worked in um uh, when I worked at Mayo Clinic that they, and I think the movie uh, with Aquafina, um, The Goodbye, The Farewell, mm. is about this of a family member in their family did not want to be told about all the different stages of her disease. She, she left that all to the family and many people do that. Like they don't want to engage in the process in the way that we typically would want them to. I, I've seen families that, believed that if they talked about their losses and the struggle that it would jinx the situation so therefore they don't say anything about it i had a client once who would hide in her closet she had late stage cancer and she would hide in her closet and call me and talk about all the plans she wanted to make for her death but her family would not allow her to talk about it because they felt like she was giving up and i and i said actually the reverse is true if she can talk about it and settle it, she'll actually do better because it won't be weighing like this on her mind. So for you, here's the thing is that based on your dad's age and ethnicity and beliefs about life in this world, he's going to go through this process um, the way that he decides to. And it's going to be difficult to watch because it's not the way we would do it. Um, I know people who get really aggressive about fighting the disease and other people that just give up. And one of the things that when I have a loved one with their disease is I want to control how they go through it because it gives me a sense of control when I feel very out of control by a cancer diagnosis, Hmm. right? When the big C comes in and I feel like, oh my gosh, it's like, bossing me around now it's running our lives it's doing this and that and one of the best ways that I feel like I can take control and have some empowerment and some agency back is to make decisions tell people what to do like you never want to meet a doctor who's on cancer treatments because their script has been flipped so much because they lose control so your dad finding his footing in the middle of this is going to be his own journey yeah and he, and, and some people go like this and they just follow along. My parents were like this. You know, I, I had worked in an acute care setting and I came over to see my dad one day. He was 
um, had a couple different illnesses and I could see that my dad was in the early stages of dying. And I said, mom, dad needs to be on hospice. He will have far less suffering, better medications, better support. And she said, no, we only listen to what the doctor says. Hmm. Okay, Nick, I was a therapist and social worker at Mayo Clinic Hospital, highly trained in this. And she said, no, we'll see the doctor in three months. And then the doctor will tell us what we're going to do because that was their generation. That's how they believe. Of course, I had to go home and deal with the, why, why am I like being treated by a, by a little, you know, as a little girl by my mom, but that was my role in the family, mm-hmm. you know? And so my dad sat like that for three months when he could have had better help. And I had to come to grips with that. Everybody does this thing you know, death and grieving and facing life-threatening illnesses in their way. And the biggest key, if you're struggling with that, anybody even who's listening is a skill and you can Google this, it's called radical acceptance. And you already know about it because you're asking me, is the best thing to do here, Cindy, acceptance? Yes, and acceptance is like this. Like, I want you to imagine like a fork in the road. Like I can go on the path of acceptance or I can go on the path of insisting that life be more like I want it to. Okay, so I have to continually turn my mind toward the path of acceptance when I decide to be in acceptance. But if I go back and I fight reality, whew, that's a hard way to insist that life be different, fight against what is. I have to reset myself to the path of acceptance. But I'll tell you who's the first person you meet on that path, grief. Mm soon as I go into radical acceptance, grief is waiting right there for us. Because if I accept reality as it is, frick, man, I'm out of my denial. And that's a huge gut check of like, I don't have control like I thought I did or like I wish I would. Damn. Like, yeah, that's, I'm powerless. And that's, that's the, like again i think that's where you kind of relearn empathy each time is like holy shit it's a big pill to swallow every time it's not like you do it one time and then you're like i've accepted reality no 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 like hundreds (laughs) of times a day like sometimes i'll do it every five minutes of like oh yeah like i'm actually powerless in this situation and i'll fight you know i have like this teenager like this adolescent me like no and you'll see people getting in fights on the internet and all these things we do. But reality is, is that it's actually not your cancer. It's your dad's, you know, and here's the other thing. When people are actively fighting a disease or they're in their diagnosis and their surgery and their um, treatments, like there's not a lot of room to make sense of what that cancer is about because you're so busy in the logistics of cancer you're not really doing a lot of introspection or reflection or putting messages together. That actually comes later if we survive. And we hope that we pray that he survives, but it'll be interesting. And I'd love for you to keep me updated. The connections that he makes as he goes and afterwards. And I don't know if your mom is living, but the connections the rest of the family makes around it. Yeah. Um, I don't be, I mean, it's funny because he literally two months ago got like a really bad case of COVID. And then when he went to the hospital, the doctor said it was a day late. You would have not made it all these things. Right. And when I went and saw him, (laughs) I laughed at this, but there's nothing funny about it. When I went and saw him, we went out to dinner and I asked him just, naturally curious like what are some because he spent 10 days in the hospital alone and it's probably the first time he's been alone in his whole life where he didn't have anything to do except watch tv maybe or think yeah yeah and i said did what what kind of things were you thinking about did you what were your takeaways and he kind of laughed and he said my biggest takeaway was that the food in the hospital was shit it's like that's that's just kind of dad (laughs) you're like no i i'm a deep thinker and i want to think deeply with my dad and he's like nope 
Yeah. But to, to answer your question. Yeah. I don't, I mean, it'll be, I'll still ask him this if he does make it through, but uh, I have a feeling the answer won't be all that different this time around. Um, and I know we only have a few minutes left and I, I want to just get into your personal experience with all of the shitstorm you went through that you opened the book with. Mm. Um, th- I'll, I'll start just by telling you the, the thing that stuck out to me was your husband's experience. Mm. I won't get into it just for the sake of my ex-partner, but she was experiencing a lot of grief and I unconsciously put myself in the role of trying to fix that for her. Mm-hmm. And so there's a part in the, in your story where you said uh, you were with the counselor and your husband said that when you got the diagnosis diagnosis was when he stopped loving you mm-hmm. And you got into why, or, or he did. And can you just talk about that a little bit? And yeah, yeah. And also connecting it to this, what my dad's going through is like, I don't know if you believe that all of those diseases came as a sign for you, but sort of what did you do after that to kind of treat the underlying thing Ugh. and not just put a bandaid over it? Right. Because there's disease is such the, the invitation into the deeper work. It's like shows up as the messenger of like, hey, knock, 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 Nick's dad, Cindy Finch. Like it's time to look at things. And it's not just about getting chemo or surgery. Like there's something deeper. Yeah. So first to clarify, because uh, Darren's like my favorite person. The very first time I went through cancer, um, he was a trooper. Hmm. So the first time I had lymphoma while I was pregnant and it was eight inches in my chest. So there was all, it was like fraught with peril because when you have a pregnancy and an aggressive cancer, like no, like no bueno, like they don't go together. And so that was a big hot mess for us. And then we got out of it and it was like, Holy smokes, how did we get out of that? But we did And then the second time, what happened is the aggressive treatments that they gave me the first time sent me into heart, liver, and lung failure. Mm -hmm. And that's actually when Darren was like, okay, I need to tap out. Like this shit is over the top because then I couldn't get a diagnosis. There's tons of problems. And, you know, I think the caregiver and the patient have such a different experience in these types of things because he was there like literally just holding everything together. He was the only one working. We had three little kids the second go around. Um, There's all these problems. I was deep inside of myself trying to figure my shit out, really just trying to function and walk. I walked with a walker or in a wheelchair. Um, it, having oh, such a sticky, like, oh, my story, oh, like, let's not go too deeply there. <laughs> but ultimately I had a husband that showed up for couples counseling 105 sessions we went to we went to couples counseling twice a week for a year to straighten our shit out and I so appreciate a guy that would show I mean now I hated him then but he was like (laughs) I just I can't do this like this is literally not what I signed up for you know and he he was right he's like how could I keep loving you you're going to die. I mean, I was at UCLA and they're like, we don't know. We have no idea what's wrong with you. I was 10 days inpatient, 10 days just sitting there. And they're like, we have no idea. Like maybe you should just go home and get on hospice. Mm. And I was like, I'm like 30 in my thirties. And, and I went to Mayo. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I'll tell you, I had to have open heart surgery where they ended up peeling the pericardial lining off my heart like a grape like it was so like cringy and if you don't think that I haven't had so many reflections on having my heart circumcised essentially and then having open lung surgery where they literally drilled into the core of me and had to do all this crazy stuff I am altered at a core level and and I remember just begging God, like, I do not want to walk around. Like I feel so vulnerable physically. And, and 
I felt like, you know, the response I got was you're going to live open hearted the rest of your life, but I'm going to bring great things from it. Mm. But you're always going to be a little different. Like, you, like, I don't have a lighting on my heart and that stuff tripped me out. So yeah, I've had a ton of reflection and um, I had to do a lot of deep work, but I was really in the pit for a long time. I remember like every five minutes, I was like, I just, I can't keep going. In fact, there's a poem in the back of my book. Here's a little like Easter egg. Let me see if I can find the page. It's like way tucked back into appendix. It's page 205. Okay. And it's a poem that I wrote when I was awaiting um, between open heart and open lung surgery. And I was done. I was so done. I was so over it. And I was actually like, I just, I just want to die. And so I stayed up all night, like insisting, like, God, you better just come take me. Like people less sick than me right next to me are dying. This is a shit show. This is not what I signed up for. So I stayed up all night. And I'm like, I just want to die. I just want to die. And then I was awake in the morning in the hospital. I'm like, I didn't die. This is such a ripoff. And then all of a sudden I started remembering, like, oh, I have three kids. I haven't really prepared them as much as I'd want to. Like I had a whole thing laid out for them, but I hadn't gone to the next level of really helping them understand where I was going to go, what death was. So I actually had the nurses take me out to the courtyard and I wrote a poem called On That Shore and I wrote it to my children. And that was one of the ways that I facilitated my own process of coming to terms with um, my end of my life. Wow. And so that's an answer. I hope that's an okay answer. Absolutely. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't go through the appendix and I'm going to now. <laughs> I'm going to search for that poem. You said on what page? 250? Uh, 205. 205. Yeah. I remember the publisher kind of gave me a little gruff for it, but I like, I don't know if that matches. And I was like, oh, that's going to be in the book. Yeah. Because that was such a pro. I mean, I was crying. I was weeping as I was writing it. And to this day, no matter how my writing does the rest of my life, that's my favorite writing mm. that I've ever done. That poem. Yeah. I don't know how long it is, but would you feel comfortable reading it and ending the podcast that way? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you. Awesome. I would absolutely love to. So it's called On That Shore. And let me just get back to 205. So I listed as one of the micro grieving practices that I have when I get overwhelmed with grief and my loss and my emotions is just to put some pen to paper. Hmm. And for your listeners, some of the phrases had started ringing in my mind while I was staying up all night getting mad at God. It was starting to kind of write itself. And so because I'm a writer, that's how the muse shows up, right? For me is like in little phrases. So here's the poem on that shore. It says, <clears throat> if I should go and skies turn gray and life swings long and low, if clouds should burst and hearts should break and between us time should grow, then know that I've but morphed a bit and flown on up ahead to wait upon the shores of God on this path that I've been led. Mm. I'll sing, I'll dance, I'll play all day, and the stories I will hear from those who've gone before me and from those who now are near. Rumors and longings from this secret place have billowed through my mind. Years I've longed to see my home, and now at last it's time. Time for songs, time for joy, time for walks and talks. Time to know as I've been known as mysteries are unlocked. My heart will bloom, his glory full, my lover now revealed, my feet upon his grass and my cartwheels in his fields. My hero and I will laugh and sing and his nobles I will greet. They've butterflied away like I now, his grass beneath their feet. Long and sweet I'll drink it in, this new life from my old. But know each day the shores I'll walk as I've grown now young from old. Know that I am waiting and longing for that time when your steps will meet my shore again and your hand joins back in mine. I'll leap, I'll run, I'll chase you down, I'll kiss you high and low. I'll tuck, I'll hug, I'll sweep you up there upon that shore. Your nose and ears I'll bite and chew as if they were a cake. My heaven will expand then when you upon that shore I take. 
when dance and laughs and sweet reliefs give full sail to this us. We'll talk, we'll tell of our sweet paths that heaven's brought us to discuss. And I'll tell of times when from his lap, your face, your life, I poured the fragrant wine of our dear love and my longings from that shore. My captain, how he'd silk my hair and gently touch my face. His hands, his love will silk you too now as we wait for our embrace. So dawn with me, step high and light when life pulls hard and mean. I've butterflied and the days will fly until I greet you on that beach. My kiss, my hugs will wait for you and then still all the more when in that time my God and I will meet you on that shore. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you. Cindy Finch, everyone. Thank you so much for coming on The Pupil's Life. Yeah, you're welcome. How nice to be with you today, Nick. Absolutely. I got so much out of this conversation and Aww. I'm sure our listeners will as well. Um, so thank you so much and all the best to you. I'll stay in touch for sure. Sounds good, Nick. Hey, uh, just so you know, when I was down in Playa del Carmen there by your hometown, I actually discovered a beach that I knew was this one that I'd want to reunite with my kids. It mm. was on that shore for me. So you and I are connected by that. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. What yeah. beach? Oh, gosh. It's in Akmal. It's where, okay. like, you'll just, I'll just have to point it to you on a map or something. But it's just, yeah. It just, I felt it when I was there. I said, this is where, this is where the reunion happens right here. That's beautiful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Please send me that. Because uh, I don't think I've been at Aquamal. Yeah, it was beautiful. Thanks awesome. for having me. Of course. Thanks for coming on, Cindy. Have a Take great care. weekend. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.